transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. We're all moving towards a cleaner future, but how do we get there? What are we gonna find along the way? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the world of tomorrow. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who just has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. If energy trading were a country, it would rival China for size and carbon emissions. The global energy market was worth an eye-watering 2 trillion US dollars in 2020, contributing to more than 9 billion, with a B, tons of CO2. Northeast Asia and Europe account for nearly half of global imports, while the Middle East, Russia, Australia, and the US are responsible for more than half of oil, gas, and coal exports, the other half of that cycle. As we hurdle towards 2050 and net zero, this is all set to change. Like we discussed last time, electrification is at the heart of the changing energy mix on the road to net zero, but it can only take the world so far. Heavy duty industries like shipping and aviation are going to need fuel alternatives, and this is where hydrogen comes in. Hydrogen is a viable clean energy alternative and countries are starting to prepare for global adoption. In this episode of the Horizons podcast, we'll examine the trends in the renewable energy market and what that means for the future of energy. We'll look at how alternative fuels such as hydrogen will be utilized in the future, and we'll explore how hydrogen supply chains will need to be formed to supply the world. I'll be joined by our expert guests to analyze it all, and as always, we'll get the final word from our chief analyst, Simon Flowers, at the end of the show. It's all here in episode two of Horizons, so let's get into it. Today, I'm joined in the virtual studio by two spectacular guests, Gavin Thompson and Prakash Sharma, both of whom are based in Singapore. Now, with my Houston time zone, that makes for a very interesting recording timeline. And I want to start by thanking you both for your flexibility making today's discussion happen. Now, Gavin, you're the Vice Chairman Energy, Asia Pacific at Woodmac. You've been with Woodmac for almost 25 years with a focus on APAC commodity sectors and helping companies build international growth strategies. That is some deep expertise right there. From your perspective, what is one thing you think everyone should know about APAC Energy? One thing about APAC Energy is growth. Asia is a energy-hungry region, uh, spectacular growth in the economy, in populations, and of course in energy demand. So that makes it by far the most exciting region for any energy analyst anywhere in the world. Prakash Sharma is the head of Markets and Transitions APAC, who has over 26 years of experience in energy, metals and mining, and climate change policy developments. I'm curious from your expertise that also includes commodity trading and business strategy, what do you think is the most underrated thing about energy and APAC? The most underrated thing about energy in APAC is the diversity. APAC, as Gav mentioned, is very demand-hungry, but also supply-short. So always pricing is the most important part of anything that happens in APAC from a energy supply perspective. So companies, countries, individuals, and governments and policymakers keep thinking about how to keep the prices down because APAC is a net importer of energy and probably will always be. I want to jump right into it. So let's get into hydrogen. Hydrogen is top of the list for alternative energy sources. The biggest energy importers are scrambling to establish supply chains in order to make that possible. What is it that makes hydrogen such a viable fuel source? So hydrogen is a viable source because it is very versatile. It can decarbonize all sectors of the economy from 
power to heating to transport to aviation to shipping to steel making so that is the beauty of hydrogen that it can really decarbonize all the difficult things that electricity cannot do or or renewables cannot do the challenge is it is expensive and it is early days to make inroads into those new areas of the economy but it is not viable yet but it is very versatile Gavin, from your perspective, anything you'd like to add to this about why is hydrogen so key here? Well, clearly, if we're talking about climate change and we're talking about pathways towards net zero, both blue and and green hydrogen, which we we will talk about um, in our conversation, offer a pathway to very low carbon energy. Um, And and I I would echo Prakash's points around that versatility. So it's in those difficult to decarbonize sectors. Here we have a potential solution with with very low carbon, which allows us to tackle those problems around things like long distance, heavy duty transportation, space heating, and and, and high intensity energy required in sectors like steelmaking. So you teed up green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. What's the difference between those two? Well, and quite distinct differences. Of course, the product is the um, uh, is, is the same, but what we're talking about is the process, how that hydrogen is separated from its um, oxygen bond. So, with um, blue hydrogen, it's primarily um, we we see this primarily produced from natural gas through um, methane reformation, uh, through steam reformation as a methane, um, where energy is used to uh, produce hydrogen. With green hydrogen, we are using electricity. Obviously, for green, it's going to be renewable electricity and to power electrolyzers to produce the hydrogen. Are there other colors of hydrogen? Is this is this a rainbow? Yeah, it comes in many colors. So it could be yellow, it could be pink, it could be turquoise. It could be even blue hydrogen as well or gray and brown hydrogen as well. So the supply chain is in the sense that where you get your electricity and how you split the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. So, and, and that basically determines what color you are of hydrogen that that is. There is no universal kind of uh, scheme or the methodology as such in terms of uh, that this is uh, gray hydrogen or this is uh, pink hydrogen. These are all early days because there is no standards as such. But generally speaking, anything, if you are, if you are using renewable electricity to split water molecules, you are basically producing low carbon or renewable hydrogen. It could be green, it could be pink, yellow, or even turquoise, depending on the source of electricity. Fascinating. And what is it at its core that makes hydrogen so expensive? So it is expensive because currently the electrolyzer, which is basically splitting hydrogen and oxygen molecules, is is very expensive in the sense because there is no automation involved here. The most of the electrolyzers manufacturing takes place via project orders or make to orders. And so the so the manufacturing as such is very expensive. There is no economies of scale built into the production process. So as more gigawatt size factories of electrolyzer manufacturing uh, manufacturing come online and there's a little bit of efficiency improvement takes goes into electrolyzer uh, processes or, or electrolyzer conversion from electricity to hydrogen that basically would drive the cost down so the, i would say there are three, three elements here one is the electrolyzer capex as such. The other is the renewable electricity cost, which has already fallen quite a bit, and we expect it to fall further. And third is your engineering skills, your ability to maintain the processes stable, your ability to 
kind of keep costs under control, keep operation and maintenance of the electrolyzer under control. So all these three combined could really bring down the cost of hydrogen from anywhere, say $5 a kilogram to about a dollar a kilogram or lower in about 10, 15 years time. But the cost decline is not going to be uniform. It depends on where the sunshine is, what the source of electricity is, whether the country has got the clean water or access to water, the cheap water, and also the access to land that is available to set up these large complex systems of renewable electricity to electrolyzer-based hydrogen production. See, when you mentioned there about blue hydrogen, of course, you know, one of the issues with blue hydrogen, if you want it to be clean, if you want it to be low uh, carbon, is, is that the, uh, the carbon emissions from the gas you have to be captured through using carbon capture. And of course, that adds to the um, produced cost of, of the hydrogen. Um, and the costs vary typically based not only on the suitability of um, reservoirs for, uh, for carbon storage, but also, of course, on the production cost cost of the natural gas itself. And then you open up that entire supply chain you need to keep constant with the demands for the hydrogen you're generating. I I can only imagine. So Prakash, you had teed up some of these key pieces to having large-scale cost-effective hydrogen production. Let's circle down to Australia. What makes Australia so well positioned to lead the world in hydrogen production? So there are three things that are kind of unique to Australia. One is the sunshine, the access to onshore, offshore wind resources, the vast landmass in Australia to be able to produce green hydrogen because that really is what is needed to be uh, to keep costs of renewable electricity down. The second is Australia's or Australian companies' ability to develop and build and execute complex projects because the success behind hydrogen is not only producing hydrogen on site but also being able to compress it transport it, ship it to the relevant demand center, which are oftentimes outside Australia. And probably the third thing is about Australia's trade relationships, Australia's long history of being able to export natural resources and commodities for the past so many decades to Northeast Asia, to Southeast Asia, to even outside Asia Pacific. So that makes Australia kind of stand out among the crowd in terms of its ability to be able to produce hydrogen competitively, but also being able to deliver through the demand centers uh, where it is needed the most. From your perspective, Gavin, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Prakash summarizes very well the uh, you know the USPs the, of of Australia, but. You know, Australia won't have everything its own way. You know, clearly, if we're looking at areas where we have tremendous solar conditions and uh, and where we have access to land, Middle East is uh, is, is is very uh, attractive. We also see other places, maybe places like Chile, which which have very good um, solar radiation conditions. So, uh, and there, we're talking about green hydrogen. If we talk about blue hydrogen, you know, access to low cost gas resources, abundant um, low cost gas resources, low cost onshore storage for carbon, then you know, it's the big producers. It's, it's, it's Russia, it's, it's the US, potentially Canada, potentially Saudi Arabia. So this isn't so much Australia just pushing on an open door. There is competition. And of course, in any competitive market, what you look for is to accentuate your competitive advantage. And that's what I think Prakash has highlighted. Okay, so we need to hop to a quick break and we'll come back. Before we leave, I want to ask one last question. We've been talking a lot about hydrogen, so I'm going to assume that's everyone's favorite element. What is your second favorite element on the periodic table? 
Well, I'm going to surprise you because um, I, I don't have many favorites, but I do know that uh, astatine is the rarest element on the periodic table. And uh, if anybody wants a statistic to take to a dinner party, uh, there's only 0.5 micrograms have ever been produced. So there you go. <laughs> oh, man, that's going to be a hard one to Yeah, talk. over to you, Prakash. <laughs> yeah, Prakash. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go for something very simple. It is called carbon. The world is abundant with carbon. The world is trying to get rid of carbon, but there is a lot of value in carbon. If the world tries to monetize carbon, make money out of it, use it, and solves climate change problem as well. The only thing is needed, that is the will, little bit of money, and then lots of patience. Wow, so with that, we will head to a break and see you guys back shortly. Hi, I'm Nina Vedrick, a data analyst at Wood Mackenzie, and this is Making Waves. Each edition of the Horizons podcast, I'll shine the spotlight on those in the industry who are doing exceptional and revolutionary work. I'll be talking to the brightest talents in the energy sector, getting insight into their work and how they see the future of this industry. This week, I'm talking to Tamara Tolls O'Loughlin, President and CEO at the Environmental Grant Makers Association and National Climate Strategist at Climate Critical Solutions. For almost two decades, Tamara's career as an environmental activist has taken her on a journey through both the public and private sectors. Her work demonstrates her undeniable passion for the environment, climate change, and simultaneously working to ensure an equitable future for all. So Tamara, welcome, and tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I have called myself a number of things. It's a really fun time to answer this question because the world is full of multi-hyphenates and I am one of those. Uh, I am a strategist, uh, the CEO and, and president of Environmental Grantmakers Association for a long time. I was a climate punk who pushed people to do things they said they wanted to do. Um, that's probably going to be a lifelong job. And I'm an environmental advocate. And it's really important that each of those components of the work really um, speak to just different impulses, whether it is to think about people and planet uh, with equal measure, to make sure that the folks who are harmed are closest to the development of solutions, and really about watching the investments as this uh, energy transition takes us from the theoretical conversations about what we can do uh, in the just transition to the reality. So I have had my hands in different parts of that, uh, often as a translator, a jargon destroyer, a writer, and an advocate. So before we get into that intrinsic connection between energy and community, what kickstarted getting you into the energy industry? Uh, well, I had the fortune of going to Vermont Law School, which is an incredible opportunity for an environmentalist and when I went to Vermont Law School, I chose to focus on law and policy, but my master's degree is in energy generation and transmission as a focal point of that work. So I did those degrees at the same time. And there I got to hang out with a lot of folks who were doing what was then a really unique and, and not yet fully formed energy sector work. So uh, Michael Dworkin and a bunch of the folks there have been thinking about carbon constraint and what it means to move people in what, will now, what we now call the just transition. And so I got to think about uh, energy generation, how it gets from what we now call the combined grid from the microgrid. And really, really, I got to do a deep dive on how much of this stuff isn't very new. It's mostly about application support and then political will to make it 
uh, matter for lots of folks. So I got to learn about all the land battles that happened over energy transmission, uh, what it means at the regulatory level to make sure that people are delivered energy, why that connects to conversations about land use and resources and air quality and water. And so really, I mean, Vermont Law School is a buffet for nerds who care about the environment. And I got to choose my own adventure, which involved a lot of interweaving between what we now call environment, climate, justice, and energy. So how do you see us, I guess, what do you see us achieving in the future in the most ideal scenario? And what are the most important things that we can do as industry um, experts and participants to help bring about that meaningful change? I think one thing we can do is learn a little bit from history. I think that there were some choice points about around the politics in energy space. Uh, we made a lot of poor decisions, like this moment of worrying about the energy crisis feels like to a generation that is at closer to the end of its life, a lot like the 70s energy crisis, right? There are real political things happening around what the just transition will mean. We should be taking lessons about what happens when we only respond to the folks who are already deeply invested in the system as is, rather than uh, making experiments in, in favor of the future and a habitable planet. So I think uh, taking down a lot of the um, $5 words around how we deal with energy, uh, making the, the process of deciding who gets what and where, a community conversation, uh, giving folks access to cooperative development of these solutions and participatory budgeting as the money moves from one forum in the federal space in the U.S. to local municipality and, and, um, and other forms of government, people are making experiments so that they're not the last to know and therefore the last to speak up about what they want to see happen where they are. And that only is a mirror image of the global conversation around things like a Green New Deal, which are still active in plenty of places who are trying to figure out what is my role if my government operates in ways that is invested in the past instead of a habitable future. And so it feels like a really ideal moment to get meta about the the conversation and very local about solutions. Do you think that the people who you work with um, or, or those that you don't work with even, do they understand how important, how everything is so intrinsically connected between the environment, energy, community, um, and how does your work allow you to kind of help others understand the importance of that? Uh, I think one, coming to this work from as someone who directly designs so much of what gets funded, I can tell you that there are no community folks who are unclear about the work. There are no people who are practitioners who are clear about the work. Uh, the places where we have gaps are in the will of decision-making and decision-making can be influenced by capital. So having folks who examine good ideas to find out what they're worth for a living think about the big picture and open up space for a long view and then asking them to take a look at how the decisions that we've made based on systems that exist do not serve the future that is coming and in many cases is already here. We are privileged at the environmental grant makers to be able to talk to some of the sharpest people thinking about what investments for the future look like. We are in 2021 thinking about 2030, making plans for 2050. That doesn't happen if you aren't talking to the largest number of people possible. And as, um, as a home for grant makers, we're able to do that. Well, it sounds like we all have a lot of work ahead of us. So thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Horizons. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Welcome back. So how is Australia planning for large scale domestic hydrogen production? 
Gavin, let's start with you. Well, we've got a number of projects in the pipeline. Um, uh, of course, of a number of green hydrogen projects in the pipeline, um, and when we have you know, investors from around the world, and you know, including you know, the uh, big industrial producers, we have very large, major international oil and gas companies who are heavily invested in uh, in conventional uh, oil and gas in in Australia, who are now looking to expand that into hydrogen. But I think that that those are only parts of the jigsaw. You know what what we need, where when we're, as you would with any new technology. Where, where costs have to come down and where both the technology and the infrastructure has to be built and the markets um, created, is you need strong policy support. You need governments who are willing to support investment, whether that's through incentives, through fiscal structures, and through partnering with, uh, with other governments around the world. Clearly, an obvious area with the development of hydrogen would be around um, carbon pricing to support that development. So I think, you know, we, we have a few pieces of the jigsaw in place, but we certainly don't have everything. And uh, just to add to what Gav said, so pieces are falling in line. So, so the key elements are uh, falling in line, but the pudding is not ready yet. I think what is needed now is lots of capital going into these pilot projects and turn them into commercial, get the infrastructure ready. Because as I said earlier, it is not about producing hydrogen on site. The key is producing hydrogen, converting into something that can carry hydrogen to demand centers and then reconvert back into a usable form of hydrogen, either in ammonia or in liquid hydrogen. So that's where I think is needed. And Australia has created a hydrogen strategy a roadmap and national hydrogen strategy. So has many other countries. So, so pieces are starting to fall in line. And but there is a long way to go because the market is not there yet. It is expensive, but it is one of the key element that is needed to meet net zero goals. So, without something like hydrogen, which is zero carbon, low carbon, doesn't emit anything, any carbon when used is what is needed in the world to reach net zero goals longer term. And that's where, that's what makes hydrogen unique in its appeal to energy producers and, and consumers. So speaking of demand, where is all this hydrogen going to go? What does a hydrogen supply chain look like? So if you see Europe and Northeast Asia are the biggest energy market today. Both are short in, and domestic supply is not enough. So they are currently taking nearly 50% of globally traded energy. As these countries set up their net zero goals and start to look for low carbon, zero carbon supply, hydrogen is one of the potential candidates to meet their demand. So we think both Europe and Northeast Asia are going to be the major demand centers for hydrogen when it starts to become a tradable commodity. Uh, later in this decade. Prakash, you know, those are not only the big energy importers right now, they're also the, the countries within those regions are, are the countries with the most aggressive decarbonization targets, the most aggressive net zero targets. They're, they're the countries who have done the most as we build up the COP26 to, 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 to accentuate those. Um, and, and they're also the countries, um, unsurprisingly, which have made the most progress around hydrogen roadmaps and, and support for investment in, in both physical infrastructure to receive hydrogen and also to see that hydrogen used in, in, in the end use sectors, which we talked about, like transportation and industry. 
Absolutely, Gap. And I think what also makes these two major demand centers interesting is because these are some of the relatively well-off economies of the world or developed economies of the world. So they have uh, the affordability and and the resources to be able to pay a slightly higher price for energy longer term. So, so not only they have set target, but the economy as such are in relatively good shape, very high per capita income. So they can probably afford to pay a slightly higher price for energy. So that also makes them the right demand centers at the right time, because what is needed to make hydrogen tradable and also become affordable longer term is for someone to unlock demand, create demand for this new commodity. And that's what makes Japan very unique with its net zero goal. That's what makes Europe European Union and the UK unique its commitment toward net zero. Yeah, and of course, Japan did this with LNG from from effectively a a zero gas market to a 99% imported LNG gas market. It seemed difficult at the time. It looks really easy compared to hydrogen today, but the the ethos is the same to say, look, I'm going to change my energy mix by bringing in something which I have no active experience of. I don't have a market set up, but I'm going to create that market quickly. And with that, I'm going to diversify my energy mix. I think Japan's a terrific example. So it's currently a niche market, but it sounds like demand for hydrogen is going to grow significantly as net zero policies gain momentum. So if I was a country looking to develop a hydrogen production program, what would a realistic roadmap look like? So what we need to understand is that hydrogen market is is a niche market. Uh, it is not small though. It is current production is around 100 million tons, but all of it is 100% fossil fuel based. So either gray or brown. Low carbon hydrogen produced in negligible volumes today, less than a million tons today. We expect as these net zero goals gather momentum and are implemented, we expect this 1 million ton low carbon hydrogen could become 600 million tons low carbon hydrogen in 30 years time to achieve net zero goals. So that's the scale we are looking at. A country looking to become a dominant producer of low carbon hydrogen. So again, three things are required. Start building pilots, start testing the technology, start establishing the technology, learn from it. These are early days. So so any mistake you make now, you can learn and and get an uh, uh, get an edge over others the second thing is about the clear policy roadmap and access to low cost capital and and once you have successful pilots and you can establish the technology works capital will come and we have started seeing it happening in australia we started seeing it happening in europe and some of the middle eastern countries as well and the third thing is talk to your buyers talk to your trading partner because this is where it needs to go so these three things uh, capital technology and policy need to join hands together to be able to successfully becoming a niche market to a net zero hero market what are your thoughts gavin i i would i would refine it straight down to bringing down costs you've got to be competitive you need policy support that is that is almost a sort of a, a chicken and an egg you know policy support helps that yeah. Cash mentions customers, absolutely critical. And, and those future producers who have customer relationships will, will simply nurture those from you know, hydrocarbons into hydrogen. I think, that, I think that's a perfect recipe for success. Um, and, and maybe something which you probably don't need, and it's, it's possibly a, a, a note of caution, is that um, 
And collaboration, you know, helps bring down costs. Collaboration increases competitiveness. Overbuilding and competing, as we've seen, and you know, there are many examples around the world. Australian LNG is quite a good example, where there was an overbuild of projects. Costs grew, um, you know, really rapidly as as access to, um, you know, skilled labour, for example, um, became very competitive. Collaboration at an early stage, I think, uh, you know, is, is really going to be critical. The lessons should be learned from where we've been with LNG. And, and, you know, certainly I don't think countries will want to repeat those. All right. So last question and what has been a fascinating conversation. How important is hydrogen production in the overall net zero strategy? Gavin, let's kick it off with you. Well, we can put a number on it, of course, based on our um, <laughs> uh, our, our scenarios. But you know, the, the I'll, I'll, again, I'll sort of paraphrase what what um, smarter people than me have said. And, and firstly, you know, if if you look at net zero, all options have to be on the table. If you take one of the options away, everything becomes much harder. Um, and and hydrogen is one of the major options which we have. So it has to happen. We we have to get it right on a a cost basis and and on a supply chain basis. Um, Without it, any any pathway to net zero becomes incredibly, incredibly difficult. So so how important is it? It's right right up there with carbon capture. It's right up there with renewables and, um, and storage. It's a key element of the pathway to net zero. Prakash, what are your thoughts? If I can draw a parallel to what is happening today in the energy market, so there are widespread shortages, supply outages to some extent. I think it tells you how important it is to make timely investments in the energy sector. Energy sector is still pretty big. Nearly 30% of global energy production in many market is traded on, on the on the seaborne sector. So timely investment in uh, in the energy sector, making sure the supplies are, are are replenished, the resources are replenished, the infrastructure is ready and transition ready, transition proof. I think it is it is very critical. So that's where hydrogen becomes important because it can be a bridge to reach net zero goals for for global economies. Mm-hmm. The problem is the currently the sector is receiving investments very slowly and and there's a long way to go so 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 the longer we take the problems are going to persist so in in order to reach net zero i think timely investment decisions are very very important and and hydrogen can be one of the potential silver bullet or 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 the panacea to to meet net zero goal for a number of countries but as gav said all options need to be on the table hydrogen would be just one of them Those are some great words to end on. So with that, thank you so much, Prakash and Gavin, for joining me today as we discussed all things hydrogen in Australia. Thank you. Thank you. In the race to net zero, countries' economic success and competitive advantage will be determined by their ability to decarbonize at the lowest possible cost. A number of countries have a unique opportunity here to harness their renewable resources and become dominant players in low-carbon energy trading. The scale of their ambition and success will affect global energy systems in, as you've heard many times this year, an unprecedented way. Energy pricing is going to change, and with it, economic growth in many markets. Green hydrogen production will need to be built to scale. While there's no exploration risk involved, the export supply chain, which includes things like storage, compression, transport, decompression, is pretty complicated. Australia and others are going to need to master that if they're going to succeed. 
Thank you for joining us on the second edition of Horizons. We'll see you on the next episode. And as always, leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Green hydrogen. Of all the technologies we need to come into the energy mix to get the world onto a two degree or lower pathway, hydrogen is one of the most important and exciting. Important because we think it can eliminate 10 to 15% of all the emissions reduction on its own by 2050. Exciting because of the massive growth potential for hydrogen. The hydrogen project pipeline is rapidly expanding from a very low base. Capital is queuing up looking for opportunities. As more projects are developed and innovation economies and economies of scale kick in, Hydrogen costs will fall and become competitive in the next decade or so. We think hydrogen will play a critical role in the second wave of low carbon technologies from around 2030 onwards, after renewables and EVs get the ball rolling to get the world onto that two degree or lower pathway by 2050. That's it for this Horizons. We look forward to catching up with you next month.